Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Each week, we'll start with a reading of the passage we're going to be uh, covering. But you know, I want to start with a few comments today. So I want you to just sit back and kind of, I'm going to lay the groundwork for this series today because I think that the religious landscape in the United States is undergoing cataclysmic change. And our world is rapidly changing when it comes to faith, church, religious belief, and Christianity in general. And the Pew Research Center conducted a survey in 2018 through 2019. And when people were asked about their religious beliefs, American adults that identified as Christian was at 65%. What you should note about that is that is a 12% decrease from the previous decade. And meanwhile, uh, Americans who identify themselves as religiously unaffiliated are at 26%. And that religiously unaffiliated would be people who uh, say that they don't have a religion at all, they're atheistic, um, they're uh, agnostic, or just that nothing in particular. That is an increase of 9% over the last decade, and from 2009, it increased 17%. And this, is, uh, this, this decrease in Christian identification uh, is uh, being felt broadly across all religions, both Catholic and Protestant. But I think even more alarming uh, than a falling away from faith in general in America is the falling away from biblical faith. There is research done by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, and they found that Christians are customizing their beliefs and creating new worldviews that are only loosely tied to the biblical distinctives that have historically defined them. In fact, according to Dr. George Barna, you may know that name, he conducted this research, he said, that the irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. Unfortunately, the theology of this reformation is being driven by American culture rather than biblical truth. And then they give some examples. They found that evangelicals are rapidly embracing secularism with 52% rejecting absolute moral truth. 75% believing that people are basically good rather than the biblical view of humans having a sin nature. 61% admitted that they no longer read the Bible daily. And 60% of mainline Protestant beliefs they found are directly in conflict with biblical teaching. And so... What I'm going to say, a statement you may agree or you might be shocked by this, 
but I believe that we are living in a post-Christian culture. Now, when I use that phrase, I'm defining it as a period in which Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion, that is, it's cult, the cultural uh, perspective, but it's also true within the, uh, within the culture of the church. The culture of church has gradually assumed the values and a worldview that are not rooted in the Bible and certainly not in the way of Jesus. And the data shows that, that this erosion of faith, it's not just happening out there, but it's happening within the church. So we have pressure from without, and we have erosion from within. Now, for those of you that are in our audience today and you don't identify as Christian, you may have lots and lots of questions about what that statement means and what it sets up in terms of discussions that may take place. And I want to invite you to stick with us throughout this series. We're going to do 14 messages so yeah, if you're not used to going to church, we're asking you to come or listen to our messages 14 times. I know that's a big life change. It's a, it's a big life change for a lot of these people that call Sunridge home too, by the way. <laughs> but stick with us. I recently uh, uh, read something by John Mark Comer. He is pastor of Bridgetown Church in uh, Portland. And he's also written a, a number of books. You may have heard of them, God Has a Name or The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he notes three things about what's happening culturally in America in regards to Christianity. Number one, he says that Americans and that Christians in America are now a cognitive minority. A cognitive minority. That's a term that was coined by a sociologist named Peter Berger. And a cognitive minority is a group of people whose view of the world differs significantly from the one that's taken for granted in a society. Does that make sense? Because all human societies are based on, uh, like, a set of values, a way of understanding the world, the things that are important to us, the things that make us happy, the things that we're striving for, ways of thinking. And our existence then are, is becomes based on these socially shared concepts, stories that we believe, that we move through life with, and give us confidence in the choices that we're making, and lead us to what we think is our, perce our perception of success. Think of the past week in your life. Maybe you met in a Bible study at Starbucks or you overheard someone talking about Jesus in a restaurant, or you saw them, saw them bow and pray before their meal as a family, or maybe you saw a Christian uh, T-shirt of some kind, uh, or someone had a window decal in the back of their vehicle. It might have said Sunridge Church. I don't know. Um, maybe you walk into a business and they're playing Christian music, or you or your friends have posted some verse or something on social media. No one is prohibiting these things, at least not in our town, right? So when I say we're a cognitive minority or I say that we're living in a post-Christian culture, I'm not talking about this apocalyptic doomsday day. I'm not, I'm not buying into conspiracy theories. We're not living that here. But what I'm saying is that Christian thought has become an outlier. 
So when we talk about human sexuality or the life of the unborn or life in general, whether all lives matter or not, or we talk about what marriage is or the purpose in life or the values that drive us, or even what a family might be doing on a Sunday morning, it puts us out of step with our culture. And for a while, that cognitive dissonance is tolerated by a culture. But now, and this is a second thing that uh, Mark Comer uh, notes, that um, the church has transitioned from an institution of honor to shame. Do you see this? For instance, when you think about the great educational institutions in this country, like the Ivy League, you know, those were Christian universities originally. In fact, education overall was, was led by and instituted by Christians as they came to this land. And at one time, pastors were honored in communities and held a place of standing. But I don't feel that that's true anymore. You know, I'm much better off to tell someone, you know, I used to be a firefighter than I happened to be a pastor. In fact, I met someone who was in, uh, you know, an executive position for the county um, recently, and we were talking about how long we'd been retired. He'd retired two years ago, and, uh, you know, I said, what are you doing? He was doing some consulting, and he asked me, well, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm actually, I'm pastoring a church. That's why I retired, and he's like, He just kind of looked at me. So so we're no longer respectable. We're like the low ground. And even in this valley, you can wear your Christian message t-shirt and you'll get some high fives or like, hey, I really like that shirt. The deep in faith, bring hope, live love. That gets a lot of cred in the city. But increasingly, you're likely to get a smirk or the roll of the eyes, or something worse. And this is the third thing that John Mark Comer notes, that the church has transitioned from tolerance to a rising hostility. We're no longer considered just weird. We're now dangerous. It's not persecution yet, but it's, could we call, in some cases, cultural persecution. Now, let me just note that I think that we've brought a lot of this on ourselves because Christianity has been co-opted in the last 50 years by politics, by conspiracy theories and other irrational beliefs. And when Jesus flags are being flown in our capital alongside Confederate flags in the middle of a insurrection, that is not good press for Christian faith. And it's not Christian either. You guys okay? But the Jesus ethic on sex, sexuality, family, marriage, the expectation of our leaders, sometimes is not just like off to the side. It's considered immoral to hold that Christian belief. And that's new for us in this country, and it puts us sometimes on the fringe. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You want to go back to like groups? (laughs) Look, I'm really not trying to depress you right now or even scare you except for maybe just a little. I'm hoping to give us a way forward because as I step back as a pastor and I watch what's happening, 
in, in the Christian community today, I feel like Christians are reeling. We're either afraid or angry. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. And many are reacting in not so good ways. We're either retreating, lashing out, ridiculing, and latching onto voices that feed our fear or anger. If we are living in a world in which the dominant values of the culture are counter to the way of Jesus, then we are a counter culture. If you're a Christian, you are a counter culture. And that is defined by Merriam-Webster as this, a culture with values and morals that run counter to those of the established society, a cognitive minority, right? What's interesting is that first Peter, this letter that's written by the apostle Peter, very much matches the era in which we're living in. And, and, you know, as we've said before, the letters that we read in the New Testament, they've been preserved by God miraculously. We have, uh, eventually, we're going to do a series called the B-I-B-L-E. It's coming up uh, late fall, and we're going to talk about the credibility of the Bible. But these letters are written by leaders in the church to regions or people who are trying to live out the Jesus way in their day and time, in a specific location, in a culture. And even though they lived in a vastly different time and region, we have much to learn from them. In fact, that's the essence of this series. What does it mean to be countercultural in the Jesus way? Before we look at, we jump into just, we're just going to look at the very beginning of this letter today, laying the groundwork. But the context of 1 Peter, let me just kind of set the framework for you. It's written around 64, 65 AD. And this is obviously before Peter was martyred. But what you should know is like, there's, there's a rising hostility, but it's not persecution yet. And, it, and yet, so Peter's letter, as he writes it, it's just a couple of years later that he's martyred for his faith at the hands of Nero. But it's not a wide-scale persecution at this time. It's just kind of, again, they're living in a, in a culture that, is, that does not embrace their values of following Jesus. And the region that he's writing to is in Asia Minor, which is um, modern-day Turkey for us. And in this culture, the hostility is rising toward Christians. And Peter uses two words in his letter to describe this social disenfranchisement that is happening among the people that are followers of Jesus in that time. The first one is exiles, or your translation may say strangers. And that refers to people who reside in a place, but they only stay there for a brief time. In verse 1, he says, you are exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he uses another word to describe their disenfranchisement. It's foreigners or aliens. And that refers to people who reside in a given place without the legal protection and rights provided for citizens. So they're more like non-citizen residents. 
And then he combines both of those words later in his letter. We'll look at it in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, Dear friends, I urge you. He's talking to the, to the people of his day in this region. He says, I'm talking to you, you foreigners and exiles. It brings them both together. And those aren't just like random words that Peter has chosen. He's drawing on the history of Judaism. And every person that heard that letter written that uh, came out of the Jewish religion and became a Jesus follower, or maybe even those that were around it would be aware that he's referring to a time when, you know, the nation of Israel is a proud nation following God and they start to unravel and they are taken into captivity by Babylon and Persia. And the prophets of that day, Jeremiah, they're talking into that period and they're referring to them as foreigners and exiles because that's what happened to them. They were scattered, same language. So he's drawing on this historical perspective in a time that was a really painful period for people who were followers of God. And he's comparing it metaphorically to their day and time. So he's working from a cultural framework that lets them kind of like, go, oh yeah, that's, that's kind of what this is. It's like that. And it says as much about their actual situation in the first century as it does their spiritual one. Because there are different ways of interpreting uh, exile and foreigner. For some scholars, they, they interpret it entirely metaphorically. It's like it's a spiritual condition. It's a metaphor for Christians' earthly existence while they're awaiting for their heavenly home. We are citizens of heaven, right? That's what Paul was writing about when he wrote to the believers at Philippi. Philippians 3.20 he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about it in that metaphorical term, metaphorical way that we have a kind of a heavenly perspective on life in a parallel world in which we're trying to live out the kingdom of heaven here in a, in a, in a culture that doesn't do the same, that doesn't have the same values so that we often find ourselves in kind of like this uncomfortable cultural position. But then it's, it also, some scholars believe that it's describing their actual social condition. They're truly without a home in society because of their faith, and they're on the fringe, socially and culturally. Because a foreigner in the Roman Empire found themselves on their own unique rung in the pecking order of the social ladder. They were below citizens, but somewhere above slaves. So they could reside in the community, and they could work, but they had a lot of restrictions on what they could actually do because they really didn't belong there. They were not afforded the rights of citizenship. They had no social power. They were restricted from holding certain properties to marry. And often if they were uh, convicted of a crime, they were subjected to a much more severe punishment than a citizen would have been. And they were subjected to suspicion and discrimination and ignorant slander because of their different lifestyles and viewpoints. And so because they lived differently, they didn't fit in. 
So they were social outsiders. In the end, we don't have to choose one or the other because they were both, right? They were both social outcasts, literally, but there was also a spiritual uh, component to that in which they didn't truly belong in a culture that wasn't, that did not share the same values. And maybe we're living in a similar time. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this idea of not belonging. He says, the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be and we are separated from home. You don't need to raise your hands, but as a Christian, have you not felt that way at some time in the last 10 years or 20 years? A quick footnote to this. This is what, this is what makes our life as Christians in the church so vital. Paul put those, con- those c- these same concepts together And he emphasized this idea that we are family as the church. In Ephesians 2.19, he says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. See, like even though you're, you're on the fringe of culture, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. Why? Because you are fellow citizens with who? With God's people and also members of his household. What Paul is bringing out is he's saying the disenfranchised of the culture become re-enfranchised through the church, through the life of the church. And, you know, it's what makes this so important, people. Because when, when we're fearful, when we're angry, it's easy to turn on one another. It's easy for the church to attack each other, and it's easy for for churches to attack other churches who are not responding in the same way. And what I want to say is that the church needs, we need each other more than ever in a time like this. We have to remember that. Even if we're doing it differently. Because the calling to live in the Jesus way becomes all the more important when we're embattled in the world. Peter here is writing this letter to people who find themselves stuck in the tension between earth and heaven and a culture that is becoming less and less tolerant of Christian belief. And his first letter here addresses Christians who are suffering simply because they're trying to follow Jesus. What Christians were facing facing in Asia Minor in the first century is remarkably similar in its early stages to what I think is happening here. So what are we supposed to do about that? That's what this letter is going to bring us. Like you, I have my ideas of what we should do. Do we fight a war? Do we just escape into a shelter? Or do we just fold and assimilate under this kind of pressure? To quote the late Francis Schaeffer, how then should we live? That's the ultimate question, right? 
You know, the Bible's like a compass. It's not a rule book that you can always plug and play to every situation. But these letters in particular, they give us direction. They guide us in how to live out the way of Jesus in a different day and time. Remember, these letters, if this is written in 64, you know, 65 AD, it's like 30 years after Jesus is dead. So it's like, and has risen and gone to heaven. It's like we, those people, like many of them never met Jesus personally. And so all they have is this Christian faith that is being passed on by the apostles and others. And they're trying to figure out how to live out Jesus in a culture that isn't embracing it. And that's what Peter's letter is going to help us to do. His greeting in this letter that Curtis already read for us is one of my favorite of all the New Testament letters because sometimes you know, there's a longer greeting that kind of focuses on the theology of the letter upcoming or Paul can often like immediately go defensive and kind of stress his authority as to like, like why he can say this and why they should listen. But Peter's greeting tells us a lot about the direction and tone of the letter that's going to come where he's headed. And by the way, I just want to encourage you to read this letter over and over again while we're going through it. Let's look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. You know, Peter starts off by establishing his authority. He names himself as an apostle with a capital A. An apostle is one who is sent. And again, as Peter is writing to, to some of these people who have never met the risen Christ personally, he's saying, I was there. I walked with Jesus. This is Simon Peter. And I am speaking to you from that eyewitness account of life. But when he writes to them about how to live, he doesn't just draw on his authority. He says, yes, you are exiles who are scattered. When Peter identifies his audience here, it's heartfelt, right? He's not just saying, hey, I'm the apostle. Here's what you should do. He's noting that they are on the fringe. They're scattered. So he doesn't just identify himself and then tell them what to do. He connects. And maybe he's doing that because of the kind of person he's been. What he's been through. And, and how Jesus has changed him personally. You know, we all identify with people in the Bible, right? Peter's one of my guys. Jesus changed him dramatically. And I've told stories about my, my BC days, as I call them, before Christ. And I've shown you some pictures. Those, if you want those, I can bust those out for you later. Peter was no super saint even though Jesus changed him dramatically. He tried a lot of things like walking on the water and then failed. 
and he was big and loud, but he failed a lot too. He collapsed under pressure, but he's always restored. And he doesn't seem to fret over it that much, does he? He kind of owns it, learns from it, and moves on. And Peter emerges with, in spite of all of his flaws, he comes out of that with a special love for the church that's inextricably connected to Jesus because he remembers that Jesus sat him down one time and said, if you love me, feed my sheep, take care of them. And that's the heart in which this letter is being written. And this impetuous guy, Peter, is given a new name by Jesus himself. He calls him the rock, which there might've been snickering among the other disciples when that was first said. But in the end, he'll exemplify that solidness by giving his life as a martyr. He says, yes, you are exiles. He knows what it's like to live under this kind of pressure, but you are chosen by God. You have been, who, at verse 2, he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word chosen, again, draws on his, his history with Judaism to be the chosen people of God, those that have been, you are my people, and I'm going to demonstrate who I am through you. That chosenness is the result of God's initiative, not ours. So there's no room for self-righteousness or pride to say, when we say, well, I'm a Christian, and we get all puffed up and we bow up against people, that's that's so counter to the intention of what it means to be chosen by God. I love what one of our elders uh, says, Todd Hunt, who uh, Todd is going off the board this year. And he's the first board member that came on, like he, he's gone the whole six years with me. So he gets like extra credit for hanging in there um, and he, he says this, I thought I received God's grace because I earned it. I got grace because I was a good boy. But he said he later realized that that has nothing to do with it, that God gave his grace to him freely. Chosen creates gratefulness in us, not pride. You know, some... Some people struggle with being adopted. Um, you know, you know, for for whatever reason, you know, you're not with your biological parents. And I've talked to people who are, and sometimes it's like it's a struggle. It's like you feel like maybe your parents didn't love you. There's a lot of circumstances, but to be a this is another word that that the Bible draws on that we are adopted as God's children, which means that he chose you. It's an entirely different perspective to think of it that way. And it wasn't because we're so choosable. Paul writes in Romans that God loved us while we were still sinners. So that chosenness is like, that is completely God's initiative upon us. If you're a Christian, God, God through his spirit chose you to be his child. And he goes on, he's going to transform you. He, you were chosen by God and he's going to transform you. How? 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying means you change. To be sanctified is something that sanctification happens over time. It's a, it's a, a progression. It's not we're, we're justified immediately when we become Christians. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west, as the prophet says, right? But that sanctification, that change that's going to occur over time, it takes time. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. You know that God's plan for each of us, whether you've been a Christian a year or 30 years, whether you're 12 or 82, God's plan for us is to change us. He is sanctifying us. So whenever we feel uncomfortable, when, when we feel like Jesus' words or the preacher or someone in my family, it's like, it's, you're pushing me a little too far. It's like, I don't really, I like it the way it is. I, I like my life just like it is. I don't, you know, I want to stay comfortable. You better find another faith because God's program is all about change. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is working on us all the time. And it doesn't always feel good. You know, I'm like, I'm starting to get old. I know you guys don't even realize that, but like, I can't straighten this arm now. Isn't that weird? So like, I went to the doctor about it. He said, you're old. That's, and I'm like, no, 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 that's not the answer. We got to work on that a little bit. Okay. You know, why don't you go to therapy for a while, which, you know, that's code for like torture. And so I go to my physical therapist, and what does he do? He like, he puts me on the rack, and it's like, you know, he's like, confess, you know, or whatever. Recant, that's what it feels like. And he's like, got my arm up here, and he's pulling on it. And he goes, no, I'm going to, like, and that was hurting like crazy. I'm like, it doesn't straighten. And he's like, well, I'm going to give it a yank, too. I'm like, <laughs> I had to pay 25 bucks for this visit. And he's like, and it cracked, and I'm like, you know, it just hurts. Sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit is the same way, right? You can't stay bent. He's got to straighten us out. But don't lose heart. It's easy to lose heart in a time where, like, there's all these other faith challenges. The Holy Spirit is going to work on you, but he's going to work in you too, right? And you don't have to, it's not going to be tomorrow. It's going to be a lifetime of change. And none of the stuff that we're facing today is catching God by surprise. He's not scared. He's not fretting. Oh, I never thought that Brit would have to pass her in a time when, you know, things are changing in America. Like, what am I going to do? He's going to do something in us. What? Peter goes on to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us like Jesus. He's going to transform us into being 
like Jesus. And later he uses a language of like, like there's a heat that he turns up. And the, the impurities rise to the top and he skims it off. We're going to talk, it's such a great passage, such a great picture of what it's like. Turn the heat up, skim off the, the dross. Turn the heat up a little more, skim it off until you get a pure gold. And then here also, he brings in the imagery of a temple sacrifice. When he says he's bringing us into obedience to Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So again, Peter's drawing on their historical perspective of religion, that that sacrifice is on there and they would sprinkle the blood of the animal in sacrifice. And it's another way of saying that if you, if you continue to allow this Holy Spirit to work in you, um, you will have all the signs of being one of the apprentices of Jesus. You will become obedient to him. In other words, because of the times we're in, not in spite of the times we're in, but because of it, God is going to lead us to find and follow Jesus. And it's going to be amazing. Now, I'm going to ask the band to come up as I wrap up my thoughts here. But I know, have you ever caught yourself saying, you know, like, I really wish I lived in a different time. You remember, like, the olden days were way better. Like, it was so beautiful. It kind of depends on who you are if you think that way. But it's like, man, it sure was nice back then when you could ride your stingray bicycle over to the park and you didn't have to worry about bad people. That's the wrong perspective. Because we're living in the time that Jesus has called us to live in. The only question is, do we want it? Do we want this? Remember, Jesus asked his disciples on several occasions, what do you want? If you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian, it might be hard for you to track with everything that I'm saying, especially if you, you, know, you haven't been in church in a long time or never. Again, I would just ask you this. What brought you to church? Are you... Are you looking for something different than what you see in the world today? And if that's the case, I would ask you, like, just stick with us. As I said earlier, stick with us and listen to what Peter has to say about what it means to live as a Christian in a culture that isn't. And then for those of us who call ourselves Christians, let's make it personal. Is this what I want? Is my goal to be transformed by the work of the Spirit into the likeness of Christ? That's the ultimate question that every Christian will have to ask that lives in a culture that is pushing back against your beliefs. And if, and if I do want that, do I believe that there's no accident here? Do I believe that God is in it? And this is part of God's plan for me now and today to reveal his glory in my day and time. 
That's a different perspective than just like gutting it out. It's to say, I get to live in this time. I get to shine the light of Christ to those around me. Because if we do, Peter says that grace and peace are yours in abundance. And that's a question, right? Do we believe that that is true? Do we believe that we can find the life-giving, flourishing, living it to the most life that Jesus invites us into? Right here, right now, where we are. Remember Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Was that verse for like another time? Or do you believe that that is possible today? It must have been possible because Peter's going to write to them about how to do that. And they were living as Christians in a culture that wasn't. So next week, we're going to look at that. We're going we're to talk about living fully in a culture of hostility. But that's next week, so you have to come back. I'm going to pray, and then I'll ask you to stand, and we're going to like worship in response to this thought that God has chosen you as a believer. He's chosen you into his family. And he's working on you through the Holy Spirit to make you look like Jesus in the world today. That's his plan. Let's stand and I want to pray. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.